Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is our Thursday deep dive episode where we interview an analyst or investor to discuss a single stock or industry. And today we are talking with Sean Emery. He is the chief investment officer at Avery & Co. And we're talking about Nutanix, a pretty interesting business. And I think it's, I'm surprised after talking with Sean, we're recording this intro after the interview. I'm very surprised that Nutanix is not talked about more because it's a relatively large business in the cloud, basically the, the the cloud landscape where you would think a lot of people would talk about it considering it's growing booking so quickly. Anyways, I don't want to spoil it all, but it, it is a really interesting business and, and Sean gives a really good illustration of everything that they do. Um, but before we get to that, I should rem- remind listeners that Sean uh, or Avery & Co. owns Nutanix. You can look uh, at their website for their full disclosure. Um, you can also look up their 13F online if you want to see all of their holdings, but just keep that in mind. Without further ado, here's our interview with Sean Emery. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right. Welcome in. Today, we are joined by, I believe, fourth or fifth time guest at this point. Now, I guess we could just call it recurring guest, Sean Emery. He is the founder and chief investment officer at Avery & Co. We will include links to Avery & Co.'s website um, in the show notes. So if, if you like this interview and you want to hear more about it, feel free to go check it out. There's a lot of good research on there. Uh, today, we're talking about Nutanix, which we were discussing this before. It's not really a household name or it's not the kind of thing that I would imagine any of our listeners really interface with. So how did you even come across it to begin with? Yeah. So what's up guys? Um, glad to be back for whatever, uh, I guess, fourth or fifth, I guess I'll go back after, but you know, so I guess the origin really for me was following the infrastructure space pretty closely, um, hardware and software, everything from, you know, Citrix with their Netscaler product, ShareFile, Citrix Workspace, some of the things you hear now. Eventually, they were acquired by Vista. You have, you know, someone like VMware out there, which you know just got acquired by Broadcom recently. So I followed this this space pretty closely, and then here came, you know, Nutanix. They came to the public markets in 2016 or so. They came out with, with some excitement. Really, that excitement pertained to the solution they were selling, or the you know the value. I think they were. They were creating uh, called HCI or hyperconverged infrastructure. Again, not something that's you know. There's a reason why it's not a household name because that that terminology <laughs> to begin with. And you know, I can explain a little bit about hyperconverged just for for people. But it seemed like an ideal path uh, forward for companies in terms of managing their infrastructure um, and looking to you know streamline and, and simplify that. But you know, if you want, I can again continue on with you know HCI. Yeah, let's dig into that a little more. How does what is HCI? What kind of services do they provide to customers? And then where do they fit in general within kind of the the landscape of cloud computing? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So so hyperconverged infrastructure. Yeah. Ironically, I mean, it, it kind of is what it sounds like. 
um, where, so if you just picture a data center, uh, whether it's, you know, very large, you know, think of some of the big companies that exist out there or smaller ones, you know, think of uh, the closet in the back of an office where, you know, you have server racks going. Um, Companies have to essentially house their apps, their data, their emails, you know, file sharing, CRM data, information, you know, you name it, right? Um, Now, traditional data centers, they used to use and still do today use what's called three-tier architecture. So there you have, you know, networking, storage, and compute. So networking being like, you know, connecting all your, your, your emails together and having that network capability, storage being exactly what it sounds like, storage. And compute is basically how you, the type of computing resources, computational resources to actually, you know, interact with all the stuff that you're, you're using. Um, now, the, the angle for Nutanix here was, you know, hardware, too much hardware, three-tier architecture, not ideal. How can you make this easier? So what Hyperconverge did or Nutanix did is they led the way here. They took what's called a x86 commodity server. So think of super micro, you know, many of the other HPEs and Dell sell similar things, combine both storage and compute. So two of those essentially three tiers um, into one device, one actual hardware device, and then just use software to almost act um, as if it's, you know, hardware, right? So that was the magic at the time was taking converging infrastructure. Um, and then the second element to this is what, what you call a hypervisor. And what a hypervisor is, and, and that's where probably the hyper, I, I believe, comes from, is an operating system that's sitting on top of that hardware that really allows for companies to uh, spin up or create virtual machines inside of these hardware. So virtual machines, exactly what it sounds like again. Um, if you're trying to like run five different apps using the same hardware, but you want to you know, separate you know, the resources that that machine could possibly produce, uh, you basically have, you create different little virtual machines inside of this. And you'll have like, you know, JetBlue's app running uh, in one virtual machine. You'll have, you know, their website running on, on another. And you just have dedicated resources. And that's what a hypervisor acts as. Um, and ultimately putting this all together is, you know, it's software defined infrastructure, less hardware, less personnel, you know, run a, a, uh, uh, software anywhere you want and and essentially be able to interact with with your machines. Um, Nutanix continued to take share in this place. It became a duopoly. You know, the hypervisor, Nutanix is Acropolis, VMware is vSphere. Um, and that's ultimately what, you know, got our, 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 you know, blood boiling around, you know, the opportunity here, which was, you know, leaders in their space, duopoly, you know, long-term, you know, customer relationships. What they offer today and it's kind of like it's been the next step of the journey for Nutanix is really around hybrid cloud uh, infrastructure. And when a lot of people hear the term cloud, they think of just public cloud, but there's public cloud and private cloud. And that private aspect can be, you know, you host your own data centers, right? You 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 basically put your hardware inside of, you know, facilities like co-location facilities. Um, there's publicly traded ones out there that, you know, do this for a living. And they'll basically manage, secure, uh, cool your your servers and all of your your hardware and you can have you know your software essentially interact with your hardware inside these facilities um but you know hybrid cloud is what it sounds like again 
you're, you're not only on premise, you're not only in the public cloud, you're not in only the private cloud. Um, you're almost anywhere where your apps, you know, where you think it's best to, you know, run, store your apps. Um, anyways, I'll step back there. There's obviously product sets that Nutanix has or have um, that also I think are are interesting um, in terms of their suites. Again, you can hear from like the 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 opening. Um, you know, this isn't Duolingo. You know, learn learn English, Spanish, French. Um, so, no, it's a it's a helpful illustration. I'm curious on the go to market for these guys. So, is it like who are they? selling into who are they talking to at uh, with potential customers how do they kind of get in the door yeah um you're obviously speaking to you know cto cso uh security officers um you know cio you're getting a lot of that in the in the same suite right obviously in this environment you're talking more to the cfo as well um to you know articulate total cost of ownership um and and really drive that message but you know, in general, you're actually just selling into, um, th this is super foundational to a company, right? So this is ultimately what is, you know, provisioning your apps. You know, this is something that you're using for governance. Um, it expands wide. You can have virtual desktops that are essentially being managed by this. Uh, they used to have, you know, Nutanix frame, which are the acquired frame and then sold frame, but essentially having, you know, desktops as a service uh, as well. So anything that is, you know, the infrastructure database as a service, they have a, a database offer, offering. So if you have databases in the cloud, databases on-prem, you can actually manage, govern, um, and kind of you know have clear oversight of your various databases uh, through one system. So they're selling to you know the IT team at the end of the day, um, and you know that can go as high up to you know the CTO all the way down to the engineers and and uh, developers. So. Today's episode is presented by the Science of Hitting Investment Research Service. The Science of Hitting was founded by Alex Morris, who spent a decade working as a buy-side equities analyst before launching his own service in early 2021. You've hear, heard him here on the show a number of times, but Alex produces really, really high-quality equity research. And in addition, he provides 100% transparency into all his portfolio decision-making. We were early subscribers to the Science of Hitting Research Service, and we genuinely believe that Alex produces research that is on par with top Wall Street analysts at a fraction of the cost. I mean, the fact that you also get complete portfolio transparency and 100% accountability is just icing on the cake. Effectively, you're outsourcing a full-time equities analyst role for just $349 per year. Brett and I both pay for the service on our own, and we can tell you that it's honestly worth the money. Some of the companies that Alex covers includes Microsoft, Netflix, and Meta, Roku, Costco, Match Group, Berkshire, tons of others. So if you're interested, check out the TSOH Investment Research Service today at thescienceofhitting.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Right. And 
Yeah, right. And so they're not self-serve. They're mainly going after these large enterprise clients. I think one thing as, say, someone who's not an expert on this industry would think about it first here is you have the big hyperscalers out there, Amazon, uh, Google, Microsoft, few others. Where does Nutanix fit in with them? I think the big, I guess, like confusion would be okay what do they provide that a hyperscaler can't you know what why is someone wanting to go to nutanix for multi-cloud or hybrid cloud yeah so th there's a couple different like ways to think about it is so, so one they have already had a, a user base right so there's the public cloud you know the reality is is to re-architect your app for the public cloud is a decent amount of lift um and do so. And then that's question number one is, you know, can we re-architect it for the public cloud? Yay, nay. Also, you know, does it make sense to, you know, have this in the public cloud or is, you know, on-prem or private cloud, you know, make a lot of sense. Um, so those are some of the, the questions. And then you add the layer of like financials, TCO, does this actually, you know, drive, um, you know, savings? Does it drive innovation? Does it drive some of the, you know, business outside of just like, you know, public or private? Um, in addition, it's thinking about why people have been buying public cloud to begin with. And the main three reasons is really around the speed to get going. You know, you don't actually have to go buy a server and, you know, and, and figure out how to, you know, have capacity to, to even do something. So the ease of getting going, that's number one. Number two is the cost structure and, and not the actual cost of it, but on actually the the way you pay for it. So on-prem, private, typically is a CapEx heavy model where you would buy, you know, the servers in every, you know, four, three, four, five years, you would reinvest in, in CapEx and, you know, rebuild out your, your data center, you know, parts of your data center. The public cloud is, is operating expenses. Um, so it's an OpEx model versus a CapEx model. Um, and then, you know, the last one is really around, uh, flexibility of, of resources where, you know, you're, you're, I don't know, Macy's and it's, you know, the day before Christmas and you don't know how many people are going to hit your servers. Um, or, you know, I don't know, mother's day and you're 100 flowers or something. Um, so those are the three elements. Now, what has been happening over the last several years is really Nutanix, HPE, Dell, and some of the, the more on-prem ish players. Uh, have been adapting to that model and essentially recreating, you know, a public cloud operating model in your own private data center, right? So everything from, you know, the, so HPE has HPE GreenLake, which is as a service. So you basically are like renting out, you know, compute resources and it's, it's flexible. It's almost pay as you go with, it becomes an operating expense instead of a CapEx budget. Um, number two is really around uh, capacity constraints. So if like, you know, if you if you care about where your data is lo localized, you know, some people you, you know, international or non-international or, you know, city and state lines, um, where do you want to run these apps? Security of the actual underlying data and personal information. You may want to have that internal and not actually have it exposed potentially to the public cloud. Um, you can keep that internal, but then have burst capacity. And actually, you know, that's where the hybrid comes in, where you can have a relationship to Nutanix has multiple relationships with now all the vendors. You know, they just had, um, they, the number one was with AWS and you could actually use your Nutanix credits 
uh, in AWS. So let's say you you have your own on-prem stuff and you also wanted to run you know, some of your applications in the cloud, you could use your Nutanix credits to buy AWS credits or vice versa. Uh, and they just launched uh, Microsoft Azure as well. So, so again, you have a central place where you can manage uh, your infrastructure uh, as opposed to, you know, being essentially isolated uh, into, you know, the various other, you know, dashboards, let's say. Um, I don't know if you read the uh, Andreessen Horowitz like a year ago, he, they, they put out a piece on uh, the cost of, the underlying cost of public cloud. And they, they you know, they did a, bu- a bunch of studies or, you know, some studies, I guess, in terms of how much they've spent on the public cloud, um, in terms of some of their, their investment, their companies. And the finding was, you know, a lot of money, uh, probably way more money than if it was a private cloud. And you have companies like, you know, Dropbox, you have companies like Zoom, um, you have others, plenty of others out there that continue to build out their own, you know, data centers themselves, um, while also having, you know, the the public cloud element um, where they can, you know, if you have COVID, you know, Zoom spins up to AWS and make sure they have capacity for everyone. Um, so anyways, that's kind of like, the nuances of all of them, obviously, AWS and, and, and the, the hyperscalers have did a really good job over the last decade of really selling the idea of, you know, start fast, innovate fast, um, and, you know, pay as you go. And I think we're, we're coming to that point where people are starting to understand there is a cost to this ease of use. And, you know, you can make a decision based off that. And, um, you know, that, that's kind of like the general thoughts around the public cloud versus, you know, on-prem. It's adapting, they're evolving, and and uh, I think there's a lot of satisfaction there. Yeah, it seems like they're a bit of a frenemy situation, uh, similar to maybe how Snowflake is, where you're providing them a lot of demand, but uh, it's just, it's a, it's a unique relationship. But if I look at Nutanix's IR documents, a lot of the times they always talk about, you know, okay, there's going to be a big growth in multi-cloud, hybrid cloud. I forget what the, I get confused on the exact terms they use. Why is that? Do you believe in that? Is that part of the thesis here? Um, is there going to be a growing, growing, growing demand for the niche that Nutanix uh, serves? So I think the overarching of like the usage of, of you know, infrastructure is just going to continue to increase, right? You know, more apps, more people using it, more devices. Um, the whole concept of edge computing, right? Where, you know, everything's going to be connected and those are all going to be different, you know, siloed, you know, mini data centers, right? Um, and, you know, whether that's, you know, two years from now, 10 years from now, it's like, you know, that's definitely a favorable trend just as a, you know, back. Um, now the trend of, of hybrid, um, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, if you can have, a model where there's flexibility involved, which is most people try to build in, you know, some sort of flexibility in their business while also understanding at the end of the day, like if, if you can understand your demand for your applications, you can build out your infrastructure for that demand. And ultimately, obviously that's going to be the most, you know, productive asset. If you think of, you know, AWS built their, not AWS, but Amazon actually built their physical commerce you know, um, warehousing for demand during COVID. And now, you know, they have to, you know, somewhat slow that down and improve productivity. It's, it's almost the same thing, but that's more just like physical, super physical. If you can build out to your demand, uh, you'll be the most productive. Um, and 
So if you can do that while building in some form of flexibility, which is where the public cloud can come in for some of these operations. And again, the public cloud is going to win a lot when it comes to you know, net new business. Um, but as those businesses mature and, um, further, you know, they're going to have the ability and resources to do so. And then you ask the question of like, you know, HPE build, building out GreenLake, you know, they're getting a lot of traction there. Nutanix is that was their, they won partner of the year last year, um, where Nutanix and HPE would go to market, you know, you'd get HPE hardware, you get Nutanix software, it would be as a service. So, you know, if you were a, a mid-sized company, um, or an enterprise, you know, you could have that same flexibility. For me, it makes a lot of sense. And then if you can match the, you know, the total cost of ownership, um, and this is a trusted company. I mean, if you look at um, net promoter scores for Nutanix, you know, it's 90 plus for seven years straight. Um, so it's a very sticky, you talk to anyone that's ever used Nutanix, you know, they love the product. They love like, you know, this innovation spirit that Nutanix has always had um, from day one, really. So, you know, there's a lot to, uh, to to like about that hybrid model, and it makes a lot of sense. Also, just to, to be clear, there's, you know, Google is really well known for, you know, ML capabilities and some of the analytics. While so like GCP will be for that, and then you'll have something for, you know, you're running Azure just to run, like manage all of your, let's say your enterprise stuff through, you know, 365. Um, and you're using AWS for some some other, you know, skill that, you know, they bring to the table. Um, while then storing maybe some of your most sensitive data on premise. So like, if you think of that world, that's where someone like Nutanix, independent and agnostic to the other vendors, um, they have something like, like cloud cost management. So they can actually oversee like, where's the best to run all your apps uh, from a cost perspective. Do you really think AWS, I mean, you would think so, but like AWS being that like agent of saying, hey, you know, it's cheaper to run in an AWS versus cloud or, or GCP versus on-prem. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a hybrid world. And the more you hear like CTOs and CISOs, like uh, that's the more and more you hear is um, uh, bringing it back to that hybrid world. So with Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Yeah. Okay, let's get into the financials. I think the big thing that pops out, gave the financials a quick glance before recording this episode, is that if we look at our last fiscal year, they had a gap operating loss of $200 million, give or take, but they generated $200 million in positive free cash flow. You talked about the business model transition. Um, you know, why is there this discrepancy there? Maybe take us through the income statement. You know, what kind of margins do you think they can get to? All that good stuff. Cool. Um, yeah, let me, and I'll step back for a second because I there is a business model transition they did go through, okay. which I think was, so I level set on like, you know, what are some of the elements of the industry and, you know, uh, the makeup of kind of what it looks like and what they're attacking. 
uh, who the customers could be um, and are, I guess. Uh, they have 20,000 plus customers. But if you go back like four years ago, they went through, so they used to sell the hardware that the x86 server with a Nutanix logo on it and sell the software with it. That was like, I mean, that was forever until like four or five years ago. Um, that came with zero gross margin. Um, about four or five years ago, they said, you know, let's be agnostic to server and, you know, let's just sell our hardware. That was step one. That was 50% or so of their revenue, 0% gross margin. So what you saw was obviously a you know, sharp deceleration in revenue, if not declines. Um, and yet gross margin went from, you know, 60 to 80 um, pretty quickly. So that was like step one. At the same time, they folded in a um, kind of business model transition from, you know, again, trying to match where consumption and trends were going was around the, the fact that they were trying to sell subscriptions versus term license. So they were selling software, right? They went from hardware to software only. Software, they used to sell term licenses, sell a five-year contract. You know, we'll come back and knock on your door in five years. We get the, you know, $10 million today, revenue and cash flow, bam, you know, deal's done. And, you know, think of how we all bought Microsoft CD-ROMs, um, you know, years ago, they would knock on our door every three years and try to make that sale again. They would have to market against us, right? It costs you money um, to try to, you know, um, you know, get that renewal. So they essentially in, um, you know, two and a half, three years ago, they started to go through subscription transformation. So going from, you know, again, term license to subscription, that did two things. Number one, revenue um, was recognized ratably over that time period now. So it wasn't recognized up front. Cash flow was, was starting to be deferred. But at the same time, when you do a subscription model, what you tended to see was contract durations would start to tighten. So you, you went from five-year terms to like we're sitting at three-year terms. Um, so you know, ultimately, what you're seeing is cash flow uh, falling, revenue falling, margins rising. Um, at the same time, and this is where we are today, here in the last like year, is really around renewals. So the renewal on a subscription comes at a ninety percent you know discount to what they used to be and and the initial land. So as this subscription model really starts to you know spin its wheels, they're getting like these automatic you know renewals at a fraction of the cost. So that's why you've seen like sales and marketing go from like 90% of revenue to 46% of revenue of which we, and this is gap where we think this thing can get to, you know, 30, 25. Uh, they've cut 20% in two years. You know, we see a, a path towards, you know, another 20% over the next, you know, a uh, little bit. Um, so back to your original question, I, I think that was important to like set the foundation because you have this, you know, this industry that is somewhat, you know, Ambiguous to people, number one. Number two, um, you have a economic model that changed in multiple directions. Um, so you can imagine, you know, the average, uh, you know, investor not even, you know, not wanting to look at this too, too much until the numbers start to show up and then you start getting interested. Um, and so last year, you, you know, it was roughly, you know, 272 million, I think, uh, in operating cash flow. Um, and like you said, negative operating income. And a lot of that, you know, is stock-based comp. So they, they do have the SPC stock-based comp, you know, um, uh, add back in operating cash flow. That's the bulk of it. Now, the key there is that uh, SPC has gone from, you know, if you think of the last like two, three years, I was looking at this, you know, the earnings report, which was, um, they essentially went from, you know, 1.4 to 1.6 and a half billion dollars of revenue over the last two years. 
uh, an increase of you know 200, 250 million dollars of, of added revenue. And stock-based comp in percent and dollar terms, dollar terms, it's down you know, 50, 60 million. Um, and percent terms, it's down to like 12 uh, million from 24 million. I mean, 20, 12% from 24%, sorry. Um, <clears throat> we think that trend will continue. Why? Because you know, two things, the renewals on that, that marketing, uh, we think uh, uh, will limit a lot of that you know, marketing, sales and marketing, stock-based comp. Um, so anyways, we see that continuing to decline. If you add back some of the pieces, just to get to your the comment around you know the discrepancy between you know the negative and the positive, last year alone in 2023, which is their calendar, their fiscal 23, uh, they're entering fiscal 24 right now. Um, is you had roughly like 60 million dollars of these like one-time items, uh, and truly one-time, uh, which are you know one was a litigation. Um, one was uh, software. They were they were using a software that they shouldn't have been using. They had to go back and you know see how much they were using it uh, and pay you know extra fees around that. There was things like restructuring charges um, in twenty twenty two calendar twenty two uh, fiscal twenty three for them, uh, and then some smaller ones that added up. So if you look at the pure you know operating cash for this business last year, you're talking about you know thirty million bucks, well below the two hundred. Um, but again, going forward. We talked about some of the things I was talking about where we think SPC uh, you know, contracts from you know, 10 to below 10, I mean, 14 to below 10. We also think sales and marketing leverage you know, has another 20% gap you know, um, uh, trajectory there. And it's pretty clear to how you get there. Um, if you just look at you know, how much leverage they've already shown here, um, one, one like check mark for us this past quarter was they added the most amount of customers, 500 this past quarter, uh, in four quarters, yet you know they spent roughly you know fifty million dollars less in sales and marketing over that time frame. So they're being more productive, um, and you know uh, their dollar based retention is you know one twenty, one fifteen. Um, so you're getting these upsells. Anyways, for us, we think this is a twenty percent you know their twenty uh, percent you know gap free cash flow business. Um, and how we think about that is super strong customer. Um, uh, retention, you know, they have some of the best retention. Why? Because they're so central to a business in terms of like managing infrastructure. It's not something you change overnight. Contracts are three years in length, sometimes more. Um, the average is three, so you can, you know, some are five, some are two, uh, some are one. Um, so you have this, you know, switching cost effect that's embedded. You know, happy customers, ninety uh, net promoter score for you know seven plus years. Um, they're a meaningful, you know, they've done a meaningful change in their business model where. Um, you know, they are positioned well for where the world is headed. And that's kind of like our research mission at Avery. Um, and anyways, that's kind of how we, you know, piece it all together, you know, through words. Um, but um, that's how we're thinking about it uh, today. And then where we think they're, they're headed. We think there's a $500 million cash flow business. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. It's always, we always struggle trying to talk through all the financials, but you did a really good job there. I, I wanted to talk before we get to kind of the valuation to tie the whole financial picture together, I want to talk about the competition because I don't, uh, we may have kind of glossed over that, but who, is there anyone that competes with them directly and what's kind of their, I, I guess, competitive differentiator or what's their pitch to customers in terms of why a customer should choose them? Yeah. So they, they're, so if, if you just look up a Gartner, you know, hyperconverged infrastructure, you'll see basically Nutanix and, and VMware in the top right and everyone's gone, right? Um, you know, HPE bought SimpliVity years back. 
that didn't work. Um, you know, IBM has Red Hat, but you know, now Red Hat and, and Nutanix are our friends now. Um, Dell used to own VMware. Uh, they got obviously got rid of VMware and now, you know, there's more business to do with Dell. Um, it's really a two horse race. This is truly a duopoly. They're the only pure play that's left as a standalone in the, in the markets today. Um, it's why you often hear drums or like, you know, drummings of, of, uh, potential takeouts of them, you know, cause they are a kind of, they have 20,000 customers that no one else has in a space that, you know, they're the only ones, um, VMware is there. So like, like not to discredit that, but like VMware is there. Um, they're a good player. They've been high, they're highly entrenched inside of organizations. Um, the key though, uh, for, and what we continue to watch is that hypervisor, which is ultimately like the operating system, like five years ago, the amount of customers using Nutanix's hypervisor was like, you know, 15, 20%, meaning the customers were using like end to end Nutanix. Um, and now today that's, you know, 60, 65, almost 70% of customers using their hypervisor. So end to end. Once you're in, like, you're using the hypervisor, you're understanding the operating system. It's almost like you're Apple or, a, you know, or a Windows um, user. And, you know, that is a pretty big deal because that, that your engineers are getting trained, you know, using this type of, um, you know, software. So that's really it. Duopoly. Um, VMware is now owned by Broadcom. Broadcom's known for stripping assets to pieces. Um, you've already heard, you know, Nutanix, one, large, one of their largest deals ever. And I believe it was a new uh, VMware customer because um, VMware customers right now are a little bit, you know, scattered to figure out what's going to happen next with the Broadcom acquisition. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, extra pipeline that's coming from that, from people we've spoken to in the field um, to you just hearing, you know, uh, Rajiv talk about it. Um, and, you know, the bread and butter is product, you know, it's total cost of ownership. It's some of those main elements that you would, you would hear of, but it's a duopoly, right? So you're either one or the other for the most part. Or you're, you know, you're just 100% in the public cloud. Um, and that's ultimately the three players, I would say. Right. Now, a quick follow-up. Uh, a lot of people have talked about lately, you mentioned even how the CFOs in conversations now where the tightening of the IT budgets, things may have gotten out of hand for a lot of companies over the last few years. How has that impacted Nutanix? And if I... Maybe kind of in the context of the revenue growth, because I'm seeing, and correct me if this is wrong, that they kind of hit an all-time, or not an all-time high, over the last maybe six or eight quarters, the most recent one, the revenue growth was the fastest it's it's been in a while. Yeah, so Billings growth, I mean, I have it here, which was uh, 44%, and Billings is ultimately, yeah. you know, a leading indicator. Um, and that's the, the highest I can see on my charts. Um, and again, so this is a model that's evolved and changed. Um and, you know, the question was really around, you know, revenue growth or what was the, uh, the underlying question there? Uh, in the context of the tightening of the IT budget, does that make you even more oh, optimistic yeah, yeah. given that they're doing so well right now? Yeah. So you're seeing a lot of companies like continue to work with what they work with, right? Um, so they've explicitly said, you know, we're getting a lot of renewals. We're getting a lot of, you know, a uh, little less upsells, but we're we're winning within our base. Um, new logos is the hardest thing to do because you know there's there's cost of change, but yet you just saw you know their strongest you know customer wins in two quarters. So that or three quarters. That's where like you know there was some uh, uh, happiness you know around you know the investor base um, where you, you saw a step up in in, in customer additions. Um, so 
tightening the belts. Again, it goes back to total cost of ownership, changing it. At the same time, like these are, you know, important projects. They, they're infrastructure technology, right? They're literally the backbones of these companies. You're either going to like adapt and evolve or, or not, right? So um, you're seeing some kind of either whether it's compression of duration, meaning people are willing to go not go out five years or four years or, you know, two years. So term compression, they'll call it. And then lastly, um, you know, uh, um, sales cycles extending a little bit. They called that out, but nothing material. Um, they have investor day, you know, coming up in, in two, three weeks. So I'll be there in New York, but, um, I'm assuming, and I have more to talk about that, but, um, there'll be a lot to hopefully, uh, unpack after that as well. Okay. And there's, uh, we've got a couple questions around kind of capital allocation, valuation, management. I might try to throw it all into one here. So the market cap today, about $8.3 billion. First things first, do, do you see the stock as cheap? I mean, you guys own it. So I think my, I would assume the answer is yes. Um, but then on top of that, what do you think of management and their capital allocation philosophy? I know there's a buyback program outstanding. How does that all tie in? Yeah. Um, so Rajiv Ramasamy, he's the you know CEO. He came on you know in the midst of this transition. Um, uh, Diraj Pandey was the founder, you know, CEO not that long ago. Uh, really liked him. You know, good energy, good spirit. Um, you know, we've talked to him on you know on our side on certain you know channels. But um, the uh, you know Rajiv has done a really good job. Um, I didn't mention before, but Bain came in, you know, two, two, three years ago, maybe three and a half years ago at prices just below this, took a pretty meaningful size, you know, $750 million investment. Um, and, you know, sits on the board and, and really, you know, th this company was a hyper growth company at one time to something that, you know, they needed to rein in and, you know, operationalize. Um, so they brought Rajiv Ramasamy, who was at VMware. He came over, obviously knows the space, knows the customers, knows the uh, the business really well, knows the selling point um, from its competitor. And he's done an incredible job at really just, you know, taking down some of the line items that we were talking about before. Um, capital allocation. So, you know, they just announced a $350 million buyback. Um, they do have a, a quite a bit of cash on their balance sheet. And now, you know, from a cash flow perspective, they're generating cash flow. Some of that is stock-based comp, and then they're wiping out some of that stock-based comp. Um, through, you know, potential buybacks. I think it was just a vote of confidence that, you know, hey, we're done with, um, you know, many much of the transition. Now we're, you know, either break even gap or, um, you know, a non-gap with some adjustments, you know, generating, you know, 20, 30, in this case, like 237 million or 73 million um, in operating cash flow over the last 12 months. So uh, it's just a vote of confidence, I believe, you know, and you take an asset that, you know, is trading at, you know, three and a half times, you know, sales, I guess, uh, on 80% margins on 20%, you know, margins that we can assume with billings growing at 44% and, you know, ARR at 30%. Um, it's starting to get interesting. Uh, if you, if you think some of those line items can continue to, um, I guess lever, uh, you know, sales and marketing and, and stock-based comp continue to fall at the same rate in dollar terms. And then therefore margin, uh, from a percent perspective, it'll fall even faster. Um, so yeah. It's a pretty good recipe for success. And I guess, unless there's any other follow-ups, I think we like to close out typically, you've heard this question before, with the pre-mortem. So what could go wrong here? What risks are you watching? Why do you think an investment in Nutanix could go poorly? Uh, it's execution. I mean, you've had like um, small things here and there that, you know, could, um, you know, they... Uh, 
you know, I know you ask this every time and it's, and, and I try to think about it like on the spot, but it's, again, it, it comes down to execution at the end of the day. Cause like the opportunity is right for them uh, to continue to execute here. And that's almost like any company, you know, that's doing pretty well. Um, it's execution, you know, it's like the last year with the not having the, like not understanding that some of your organization was using a software you're not spending on. I mean, and then now you have to, you know, recoup some of that. They obviously got it done pretty quickly and moved on, but it's one of those things where, you know, that could take you off the eight ball for a second. Now from like a industry standpoint, um, here's the thing is like AWS has outposts, you know, uh, Azure has their, has their version of, you know, Outpost is their on-prem version, right? They're trying to make like an on-prem-ish type of uh, product. And so did uh, 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 Microsoft, you know, but that's been there for a while. Uh, you have um, Microsoft or Google at, at Google Cloud Next, you know, last week, you know, they, they had a couple products that one called Anthos, which was essentially supposed to, you know, four years ago, everyone was like, oh, that's going to replace, you know, Nutanix trying to be like the hybrid cloud um, you know, portal, I guess. Um, and, you know, sure enough, four or five years later, you know, they just re changed the name of it. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily something I don't, I don't think that's going to be the angle of failure. Um, I think it's more simply, uh, you know, execution and, and just not having a clear roadmap of, of selling, but everyone we speak to, you know, channel partners, uh, continue to sell a lot of Nutanix. Um, and so, you know, steady drumbeat of, of just execution. We think this thing can compound for a while from a, from a, a top line perspective and then operational um, execution that they've done over the last, you know, three years, I think has been pretty stellar. Um, so that's kind of, uh, that's kind of some of that. I mean, those are like the main things we're thinking about, you know, those are really the only areas you can really think about competitive and also like self inflicted wounds. Um, so that's really, that's that for me. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised. I haven't heard more about Nutanix. It's like, you know, it's in terms of revenue, it's not a small business and it's it seems like just a huge runway in terms of addressable market. But um, that is all the questions we have, I guess, for listeners that are maybe first time listeners to you. Where can they find you? Where can they follow along? I'll plug right now the Inside Scoop podcast. Avery and Co has their own podcast um, and newsletter, which, right? Same name or yeah, yeah. That one uh, is the the data newsletter for Friday. I love but, that. Uh, I like that one a lot. So yeah, cool, awesome. That's a uh, yeah. Inside Scoop and and data newsletter. I'm only on Threads. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, on Twitter, <laughs> uh, you know, X. at underscore Sean David. Oh yeah, jeez. Uh, at underscore Sean David, I'm going to be calling this thing Twitter for the rest of my life. And uh, yeah. yeah, lots of, yeah, tween, tween, tons of good uh, data points and stuff that you guys are finding. So really, really enjoy following you. Yeah, All same right. here. I love you. I love what you guys do. So I'm plugging your plug. So <laughs> <Sorry. Thank> you. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, uh, we should throw a disclosure on this before we sign off. Uh, Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you, Sean, for joining the show again. And John, you got a disclosure too? Yeah. Disclosure now. <laughs> I totally forgot to say at the beginning. Yeah, you know, we're investors in Nutanix. So like obviously we have our own opinion there, but um, you know, invest with your own uh caution. Investing called evolved risk. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thank you.